welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. Artificial intelligence tools seem to be in the headlines more and more these days, from facial recognition used to enforce COVID lockdowns in China, to law enforcement robots in San Francisco, to machines using text prompts to generate new kinds of art. AI is an increasing presence in our daily lives. This week, we're excited to discuss a new paper published in the University of Miami Law Review called The Promise and the Peril, Artificial Intelligence and Employment Discrimination. And we're excited to discuss this with two of the co-authors here this week. First, we have Commissioner Keith Sonderling of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where he's been a commissioner since 2020. Before his confirmation to the EEOC, Commissioner Sonderling served as the acting and deputy administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the U.S. Department of Labor. He also serves as a professional lecturer in the law at the George Washington University Law School, teaching about employment discrimination. And since joining the EEOC, one of Commissioner Sonderling's highest priorities is ensuring that artificial intelligence and workplace technologies are designed and deployed consistent with longstanding civil rights laws. And we're also happy to be joined by Brad Kelly, Chief Counsel to Commissioner Sonderling at the EEOC. As chief counsel, he provides the commissioner with legal and policy advice on federal employment and anti-discrimination laws. And before joining the EEOC, he was a senior policy advisor with the Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Department of Labor and also served as an, an attorney in private practice and in the U.S. Army as an infantry and intelligence officer, including a combat tour in Iraq. Thanks for joining us today. To start things off, I just wanted to ask for our audience, what's your paper about? How did you come to write about artificial intelligence and employment discrimination? Well, thank you for uh, having us on the podcast. We're, we're excited to be here and talking about this uh, this paper we wrote. So um, since uh, joining the EEOC, I started to make it my uh, priority to address the a use of artificial intelligence in the workplace. And I've been making uh, a lot of uh, noise about it, uh, both here and, and, and across the, the globe, because it's, it's really an issue that is taking over uh, human resources, it's taking over uh, the workforce and how we think about not only just managing and dealing with employees, but hiring and, and even firing them. So um, really before uh, diving into this topic, um, because it's so widely used uh, on a mass scale without any guidance, without any best practices, without any general awareness of the potential legal ramifications, and really no significant enforcement or litigation yet. So my raising this awareness from my, my background is that I didn't want these guidelines or best practices made through federal enforcement or trial lawyers, uh, because the companies are going, as we'll discuss, we're going to have to rely on this. You know, I thought there really could be a better, more innovative approach because I think artificial intelligence is out there. Uh, everyone wants it to flourish. Everyone wants it to take off. Everyone believes it is um, the, the future. But unlike other areas of dealing uh, with AI in businesses or generally when it comes to the use in human resources, really dealing with some of the most fundamental civil rights we have, and that's the ability to enter the workforce and be in the workforce, succeed in the workforce, provide for your family without being discriminated against. So uh, the, the potential of artificial intelligence to do that is out there just like uh, any other type of ways discrimination occurs um, through humans. So I started talking about this uh, a, a lot and started getting a lot of traction um, because a lot of employers were already um, using it. So in writing this paper, we thought it would be a great avenue to, to put it all down and, and really have an A to Z full spectrum discussion about not only the, the technology itself, but the underlying laws um, that apply to it that have been around um, since the 1960s. And that didn't really exist. Um, other than uh, me talking about it and raising awareness of it, there wasn't an actual document where people can turn to to read um, the full spectrum of its use. So um, that's why we decided to uh, put this paper together. Thank you for that. And 
that was the impression I got. This seems to be a one-stop shop. I think it's 88 pages and you go international, local, all the different approaches to how people are handling AI. And I do want to mention, we're also joined by the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White. <laughs> Adam, Thanks. did you have a question? I did, Jace. And I just want to repeat what you said at the outset. This is a fascinating paper. We're so lucky uh, to be joined by by both of our guests today. And I, I want to say off the bat, in terms of one-stop shop for this paper, I mean, the way that you sort of structure the paper by introducing the technology and then really even-handedly thinking through both uh, the promises and the perils of AI in this regulatory context. It is, it's just a, a really great, great paper. AI is such a huge category. It means something, it means different things sometimes to different people, or at the very least, it covers a wide spectrum of tools. Could you maybe just give us a, a an overview of what you mean here by AI? What are the eight artificial intelligence tools that are most relevant to the, the to the workplace uh, context that you regulate, yeah. So I think you know what a, a definition. We talked about a more technical uh, definition in the paper, and I know that without an actual federal law saying this is what artificial intelligence is, uh, a really easy to understand definition of what it is. It's just a technology that mimics human thinking by making assumptions, by learning, by reasoning, by problem solving, or predicting things with a high degree of autonomy um, based upon a data set. So that includes many things you're hearing, a lot of buzzwords, whether it's machine learning, natural language processing, deep learning, um, even some of this uh, neural uh, networks. Or So it's just so all-encompassing in what we're seeing now with these chat conversations that everyone's having with open AI. So it's just so wide ranging. But when it comes to the use in the workplace, AI is making all types of decisions once made by uh, people. So uh, whether you're aware of it or not, AI writes job descriptions, it screens resumes, it chats with applicants, it conducts job interviews. There's software out there that predicts um, if an employee will accept an offer and how much money or benefits uh, you need to give them to predict, uh, to make that assumption. There's also software out there that predicts based upon reviews of, the, of an applicant's social media or writings, how they'll interact with your current uh, workforce. Um, there's software out there that identifies uh, potential skills of an employees of, that they may not even be aware they have. And then there's software that tracks productivity, assesses workers, and then uh, even software that uh, will tell them uh, the employees that they're potentially fired. So it's really all-encompassing. And, and from every uh, software out there, more and more comes online for every use. So it's really everything you're thinking about of what humans did in, in the management side of uh, HR, of talent acquisition is really uh, being automated now. That's that's fascinating and also kind of terrifying, I have to say. Um, this is really great. Jace, back to you. So that sounds like it would save HR professionals a ton of time. And in the article, you mentioned that AI can be a tool to fight bias that might come in when you're relying on humans to make some of these judgment calls. But at the same time, um, what are the kinds of employment discrimination pitfalls and liabilities that employers might be opening themselves up to by relying on these tools? Well, there's a lot of potential um, benefits to this, and I think we'll, we'll talk more uh, in depth about some of those as well. But you know, with AI, it all comes down to how it is, number one, how it's designed, and number two, how it's implemented. Um, also, because if, like, let's just take a step back. Why does the EEOC exist? And the EEOC exists because there's been bias in human decision-making when it comes to employment, which Congress has said post the civil rights movement um, is illegal. So our mission, um, I know there's a lot of federal agencies out there, um, we're our agency's mission is to prevent and remedy unlawful employment discrimination and to advance equal employment opportunity for all in the workplace. So the laws we enforce here not only protect an employee, but an applicant for dis from discrimination based upon race, color, sex, pregnancy, national origin, age, disability, genetic information. So all the big ticket items, but not only that, and this will make more sense in a moment, 
it applies to all types of work situations. So whether it's hiring, firing, which is what most people think of, but also promotions, training, wages, and benefits. So um, there's a lot really our laws apply to really the entire scope of the employment relationship. Now, so there's so many studies about bias in the workplace. Um, A male and a female submit a resume um, the same qualifications, the male is more likely to get picked. Um, people, there's been studies about um, people who whiten their resumes. And what does that mean? It means if they delete characteristics um, associated with race, they're more likely to get um, picked than those people who have um, those characteristics within there. So the issue now is that this has been happening. Obviously, the EEOC gets around... 60,000 plus charges of discrimination every year. In the last two years, we've collected almost a billion dollars from uh, employees, employers in the federal government and state and local governments for discriminating. So the issue is that discrimination happens and uh, HR professionals do not become aware of it until it is too late. But here's where artificial intelligence can come in. It's a long way of getting to um, your question. Um, It can really help eliminate bias from the earliest stages of the hiring process. So for instance, an AI enabled resume screening program can be taught to disregard those variables that have no bearing on a job performance. And one I really like to highlight just because it's very easy to understand an applicant's name. So think about an applicant's name. What does a name tell you about the, that applicant's ability to perform the job? Absolutely nothing. But what it does tell you is factors that you are not allowed to make an employment decision based upon. It may tell you the applicant's sex. It may tell you their natural origin, their religion, or race just by a name. So an an AI program that can, in the screening process, can completely be engineered to not look at the name or not look at factors such as age, such as graduation date. Um, sex, race, disability, or even pregnancy may be able to find those characteristics and screen those as well. So that is really a very critical potential use of AI that will eliminate um, bias at the earliest stages of the hiring process, or even seeing a candidate. So, you know, typically whether now it's on a lot of interviews or on Zoom, but, you know, an applicant walks in the room and, and what's the first thing you see? All these things you're not allowed to make an employment decision on their race, national origin, um, or other characteristics, like if they're disabled or pregnant, right? And, and historically, a hiring manager may think in their head, well, this person's disabled. How much is an accommodation going to cost me? She's pregnant. Oh no, she's going to take leave in three months and then be out for three months. This is going to cost me. I have somebody else who's equally qualified, maybe not, but they won't come with all those other things that I'm going to have to accommodate. So this is obviously a highly illegal example, but it's one that AI that can't see any of that may potentially mitigate. But at the same time, and and this is sort of the theme of the paper, the promise and the peril, right? So that's promise. But now the peril, if it's poorly designed or if it's carelessly implemented, it may discriminate on a scale and magnitude far greater than any one individual decision uh, decision maker could, that's because it relies on some of the data, the training data, the algorithms only can take that and correlate it and make a decision. So if, if there's biased data, and, and we can give specific examples of this, um, it's going to just amplify and replicate that as well. Or if somebody with a bias has the ability to access the algorithms and make decisions and and put in metrics that are going to screen out individuals with disability, individuals over a certain age, or individuals related to those characteristics I discussed earlier can really scale discrimination in a millisecond. There's a study out there that shows talent acquisition um, individuals, they take about seven seconds to review a resume, right? So if I uh, have a, a biased a talent acquisition person, and I don't want somebody of this national origin in my workforce. I have to go through every resume looking for uh, whether, let's say, it's a historically uh, black college, right? I'm going to look in and immediately eliminate everyone who went to historically black college because I assume that they're African American. That takes a lot of time, right? But now using AI, 
in milliseconds, you can look through thousands of resumes and delete people with those, you know, who, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a club or whether it's a college in a millisecond scale discrimination. So you see for every benefit, there's a potential harm in using this. And that's really what we're trying to raise awareness of. Yeah. If I could follow that up just real briefly in terms of the, as you point out, the, all the promise of algorithms, much of the promise is in avoiding sort of the, the, the downsides to human judgment. Um, but I suppose there's other promises. There's, there's other promise in terms of of creating the tools for people to improve sort of the best parts of human judgment, right? As a, as an aid to those unavoidable judgments that come in hiring. As any of us who have ever been involved, either as, uh, on, in hiring or being hired, know you know it, it can't always be reduced to a, to an equation. Right, there's always going to be some judgment, but I suppose AI is it has some promise to just improve those those final unavoidable judgments that have to be made. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, and and that's what makes it so attractive to employers. If you think about it, is that its reliance on hard data creates the potential to eliminate the discrimination by removing the human from that decision making process. And if you think about it, if it is designed in a clear and explainable way, it does eliminate that challenge. And right now that challenge is we talk about so much in, in regulating tech, you know, you talk about the black box, right? The black box of the algorithm. And, and this is a, a conversation outside of our wheelhouse, um, more in Congress about getting big tech's algorithms. We'll be able to see it, but what are we left with right now with uh, employment decision-making? What's the black box? You know, that's somebody's brain. <laughs> and, and we don't know exactly the decisions that, that individual is going to make, whether it's a lawful or unlawful decision. But um, that's where you know AI can come in. And if it is designed in a clear and explainable way, we'll be able to see that decision-making and see if there was bias in there or see if it was really used um, in a proper way to actually make that determination based upon the employee or applicant's actual skills that are in their resume and none of those other factors. And that's because the AI has no motives or intentions of its own. It only has those algorithms that help it correlate data and make those predictions. So that is certainly something, uh, a beneficial use. That's the way, um, why employers um, want to buy it. And uh, that's the why it's being um, developed. But again, like everything else, there's problems with just solely relying on that, which we can get into. And I, I want to add to that, that one example that we highlighted in the paper about how, you know, the human element and the computer element, if you will, are beneficial, mutually beneficial in a lot of ways, is the use of scanning and filtering of resumes. We use one example of a company that had a hiring event where they received over a million resumes within a period of, you know, I think it was between one and three days or something along those lines. And with the ability of AI to go through that high number of resumes to filter and identify the best candidates to do kind of the legwork, if you will, for the uh, HR professionals. That's it's a very it's it's a very useful way to you know be able to do that. And it's a it's a it presents one of the greatest promises of artificial intelligence by applying you know taking out that subjectivity and making sure that these objective criteria are applied so that hiring professionals can make the best decision you know based on what the algorithm has already produced. Yeah, and that sounds like the biggest promise of AI is just this huge efficiency to the marketplace. You can bring people into new jobs and really get them to work a lot faster. Um, being in the academic realm, sometimes there it's not that it's bureaucracy, but there are a lot of hurdles in the HR process, then AI tools seem to really help with that initial process. One question I had, we were talking about ways that AI can help on the job, um, was the relationship between some of these AI tools and the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you mentioned that sometimes these machines will be able to notice characteristics that are legally protected that humans might not, like muscle strength. If a machine can see that an employee is stronger or weaker, and then there's a termination, sometimes that might open the company up to liability, um, and they would have to demonstrate that the decision was not made based on that. But on the other hand, the AI can power 
like a mechanical exoskeleton to help as a reasonable accommodation for someone who might not have been able to perform some physically demanding labor. And so how, what kind of challenge does that dynamic pose for implementing some of these tools from your perspective? Yeah, well, there's a lot to um, take on with the Americans with Disability Act because out of all the charges we receive every year at the EEOC, um, retaliation is our number one charge, but that's normally an add-on charge to another line underlying discrimination. So uh, taking away that, the actual core claim, number one core claim of discrimination at the EEOC is disability discrimination under the Americans with Disability Act. So disability discrimination is already an issue outside of technology. And and I think a, a larger threshold issue that we need to just you know, talk about when it comes to the Americans with Disability Act is as a lot of these tools, interviewing tools, let's, let's just start out with go online or go on an app and require you to um, do traditional employment assessments, whether it, it's a test in, in a online, whether it's a gamified assessment or just an online interview that requires you to um, ha- have a discussion and, and look another person uh, directly in the eye. It is so critical for employers who are implementing these programs to understand that the same accommodation requests for applicants apply when it comes to artificial intelligence as well. And as more and more of this goes to apps or goes online, employers need to be thinking, what how is somebody with a disability going to be able to use this advanced, sophisticated assessment or application um, using artificial intelligence, just like any other applicant could? And the reasonable accommodation process and the alternate process still occur. So a lot of this software is being sold saying, you know, here's, you know, for, for instance, forget resumes, everyone's going to take these online assessments using these tools. And, um, for somebody with a, a disability, you're still going to have to have traditional ways to interview. So that that's just the threshold issue. But to your point, the, the second part of it too is for employees now who are going to be, and I think the biggest risk related to Americans with Disability Act is related to uh, those employees who are now going to be um, managed by artificial intelligence. And what do I mean by that? Uh, in, in certain areas, in employees point of contact, their manager is actually going to be a, a chat bot or um, a, an app that tells them what they have to do for the day. And if you're assigned to make you know, 20 widgets that day or make 50 uh, package deliveries, and, and for some reason you're not hitting those goals because of an area of our law that requires an accommodation, such as a disability accommodation, there still has to be mechanisms to be able to do that for the employee to engage in what's called um, the interactive process so the employer can make a, a, uh, a reasonable accommodation if there is one. So, you know, it's certainly a challenge because normally if somebody is not hitting their, their goals or, or production quotas is set out by an algorithm or set out by a human, there's a, a manager there to see um, that they're struggling and they see they're struggling because of a disability. And don't forget disability now is much more wide ranging than just a physical disability. You know, um, mental health uh, concerns still come under the disability realm. And what we're seeing post COVID is certainly an increase of mental health claims. So uh, going back to my point is a human a manager sees that an employee is struggling and, and engages um, with that employee to see if there's a way to accommodate um, them. And, you know, an algorithm, an app, no matter how sophisticated, if they're seeing that the employee is supposed to make 20 widgets a day and they're making 10, they're just going to be lowered and their score is going to be lowered or the, you know, their rating is going to be lower and they could potentially be terminated um, because of that. So, you know, it, it, it's just critical. And like, Going back to all this technology, still our laws still require you know the same accommodations, the same requirements of whether it's made by a computer, whether it's made by human, and that can't be lost from that. And certainly, you know, a risk area where it comes to the Americans with Disability Act. Now, to, to what you were saying about how AI can 
essentially help workers with disability. There's been a lot of studies on that. You know, so the promise is there is that there's a lot of new accommodations, whether it's actual physical equipment that helps like the exoskeletons that helps uh, employees who are disabled be able to do things um, that they weren't able to do before, like certain lifting requirements as well, or even to um, health and safety and, and having um, AI assist employees in making sure that they have their proper safety equipment on, not letting them in areas if they don't have the proper gear and goggles on. So there's so many additional ways now, uh, going back to the Americans with Disability Act, that new accommodations that didn't exist before AI now exist that really are helping uh, disabled employees um, do jobs they were never able to do before. That's awesome. Opening up the horizon. And I was going to ask something about some of the screening uh, that AI helps with, again, using potentially using factors that you're not allowed to. You used one example in the paper of someone who had gotten perfect SAT scores but had been turned away from like entry-level retail jobs. And it turns out that person had bipolar disorder. So there's the concern that some of the personality tests or other games or screening metrics might be filtering out people that a human might not have discriminated against. But moving past that, um, you wrote about the current legal framework generally focusing on employers and their use of AI, but other people that have written about the subject and approached how to regulate these tools have focused on the vendors. Where do you think that balance should be struck, or is there just a place for regulation of both employers and the vendors who develop these technologies. Well, I, I need to make it clear what our jurisdiction here is at the EEOC under Title Seven, and we have jurisdiction over three groups: employers, which is the vast majority of our claims. Employers includes the United States federal government and state and local uh, governments as well. So very wide ranging. Then um, staffing agencies, and then unions, and that's it. So it doesn't matter who is making the employment decision, whether it's a computer, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a third party, the employer is liable for whatever um, decision it makes. So if the result is discrimination, we don't need to look who, who discriminated it's the, the employer is going to be liable. So that really presents a, a new challenge when it's coming to artificial intelligence and HR technology generally. Before, there was never really a question that, you know, the potential discriminatory hiring decision, discriminatory uh, demotion, transfer, whatever you want to say, that it was occurred by an empo- employee of the company um, that is responsible the supervisor, the HR, the CEO that's responsible for any of the actions um, the employer makes. But now you're having software potentially make these decisions that was bought off the, bought off the shelf and implemented, and the employer may not even know how that software came to that dis- decision. Whether it was you know looking at a discriminatory uh, uh, data set that wasn't um, diverse and potentially discriminatory, and that was the pool, or if it was an algorithm designed to specifically um, weed out certain uh, characteristics unlawfully, but none of that matters from our perspective. When the EEOC shows up at your door, or class action lawyers bring a lawsuit on this, you know the company is the one responsible. And it's just, it's a whole new dynamic that really obviously wasn't contemplated when these laws were passed, but that is the framework we are dealing with. So from our perspective, it doesn't matter who made the decision. You know, there's no defense that somebody else did it, that the, you know, we could jokingly say there's no defense that the robot did it. I'm not liable, but uh, under, you know, title seven, under all of our laws, you, the employer is liable for any decision, whether it's made by a human or a computer, and that is being lost in the bigger picture. That is being lost in the discussions in Washington, D.C. about technology regulation, and I feel like we are getting swept up into that, and the vendors, because a lot of them are from Silicon Valley, a lot of them are, are outside of our world from a you know HR perspective, from a legal, legal perspective, and 
with all the distraction, and we'll talk about other jurisdictions, um, global and, and state and local, of saying who is potentially liable and we need new laws to regulate uh, AI. As employers are listening to that, as vendors are out there selling products about, oh, well, there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty when it comes to AI. There's a lot of regulatory uncertainty when it comes to technology. But for employment decision-making, there is no regulatory uncertainty. You are liable for that decision. And that is what I'm really trying to raise awareness of. And we've you know, really brought that to light in the article and, and discussed the, the vendor liability, which is a really fascinating topic, both from you know an academic and a potential regulatory um, perspective. But for right now, there is no question. But we're getting lost in that in those discussions, and employers are not necessarily aware of that. And I'll just I'll just piggyback on that. And I think you know Kate summed it up very well with that. But that's one of the reasons that one of the best practices that we highlight in the article is to understand vendor liability because it's complex and because it's something that a lot of people overlook and that it's something that especially for employment purposes you need to be aware of. And you know, so that's one of the reasons that you know that for the best practices, you know, it's definitely key to try to understand vendor liability and ask a series of questions to, to try to understand, you know, like where, where the liability is going to head. And I, I think that that's a key point, um, you know, for, for the best practices and something that, you know, has been discussed by many practitioners, but this is the first time like in an academic setting that we're really kind of, you know, addressing that as a key issue. Brad, your point there uh, really goes to my follow-up question, which was about uh, risk management. You know, companies uh, are—they're in the business of risk management, no matter what other business they're in, um, including in in hiring and and employ- other employment decisions. But just in general, they always have to manage risk. I'm surely some of the issues we're talking about today will be resolved in the background uh, as a matter of insurance liability and insurance coverage. But as you point out. A lot of those relationships will themselves be informed by either official best practices that are developed by companies or standard setting bodies, uh, or they'll be involved, they'll be informed by the experience of other industries. That's, I guess it's a long way of saying, can you give us a sense of how basic expectations around the use and risks of AI in this context are, are being informed either by other industries or by specific companies? Yeah, that's one of the things. One of the things that we do in this article is we try to look at a number of proposals that have been, um, you know, put forward. Whether it's legislative, uh, you know, regulatory, you know, type proposals, but we try to look outside the box as far as what other industries are doing. And one that we really wanted to highlight as an important model to look at is what's called the model risk management framework. And this is essentially what corporations in the financial sector have been, you know, have, have implemented for over a decade. And the whole idea of this is that the whole idea of this framework is that companies and developers can effectively manage the risk with AI to look at all the risks that we've already discussed, you know, with the EO issues and otherwise. And, you know, by using what's already been established that's from the lessons from the financial industry and that these have been around for you know a long period of time and to take this same framework that's been tested and true from the financial sector and to apply it to minimize risk. And, you know, and I, I think it's something, I mean, in the article, we provide some examples of, you know, how this has already been kind of implemented in a number of ways from the Department of Labor with the different programs, whether it's at OSHA or at, you know, Wage and Hour Division, how it's already been, you know, used in some ways. But it's something that I think that can be looked at as an effective framework and where we can learn lessons and we can apply it to to allow companies to reduce the risk as as a you know as a, as an effective way as something to consider and and I'll add to that in the sense too where for employers who are using these um, programs this the self governance is is really so critical and it's so key and the point Brad was trying to make about the financial sector um, is that companies are used to doing this. And companies are used to doing their own internal audits. The companies are used to um, ensuring that um, there's either no discrimination, there's no wage discrepancies. So it's not that foreign of a concept for companies to do due diligence internally, um, especially now when using these um, programs. So 
if you if you think about somebody who just you know there's two companies company a and company b company a listens to the sales pitch from these AI vendors. And a lot of it is based on diversity, equity, inclusion, and diversifying your workforce. And you know, here's a tool that, that is going to do that, right? So great, we're going to buy it. We're going to implement it like we do other software. We're just going to let it go. Versus company B that says, okay, you know, we understand this. We're, gonna, we're going to buy it. But before we actually let it make a decision on someone's livelihood, we're going to test it. We're going to ensure that there's no bias. We're going to understand, and this is working with the vendor. We're going to understand what our uh, data set is. We're under, understand the applicant pool. We're going to understand the qualifications of the job that it's actually going to make the decision on. And if all those qualifications that we've had in the in the job description, looking that the computer is going to go look for applicants, that may is are they all necessary? Are we going to be able to justify those as uh, as a business necessity if we have to come down to? Is it actually uh, the proper qualification for the job, or is it in there just because it's historically uh, been in there or we found the job description from the internet and it's going to um, dissuade certain uh, races, national origins, sexes, not to apply. And then when you actually go, you, you test it and you see if there's discrimination and if there is discrimination and you can't correct that discrimination by um, changing the data set, the wider applicant pool, whatever it is, or the algorithm itself and going back and tweaking to make sure that it's not looking for certain characteristics that it's not allowed to be, then you, if they abandon it without ever using it to make somebody a, an employment decision, then there's going to be no liability. Or even if they do, and there is discrimination, because you know a lot of uh, times that it just it happens. Versus that company A going back to them who just let it go and it had horrible discrimination and it completely um, did not select a single female applicant because of the way it was set up. Who's going to be in a better position, right? So both companies essentially discriminated. Maybe there's some discriminatory results, no matter what. But for the EEOC or for class action lawyers, are you going to waste your time with company B that they did everything right, that they tried? And e even though they made a mistake, it wasn't as egregious as company A who just took the sales pitch and let it go. So that is something companies can be doing right now. And you're just going to be in so much of a better place with the limited resources the federal government has to actually understand and investigate these claims. Just to... Uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that, that's that's my point, and that, that's what we're, point we're trying to make. It, it's the time is now to start, you know, doing these internal due diligence, and you can because it's just going to give you a better defense if federal regulators show up or if you get a demand letter. And you think about a response to a demand letter saying, you know, you've discriminated. What do you say? Okay, we, we just bought the software and let it go versus the situation I just explained with Company B, who can send a, a, a twenty-page response saying, "Here's everything we did." And um, th that is really the awareness we're trying to raise in these best practices section and bringing up some of these models that um, Brad just talked about. You don't want to hinge too much, put too much weight on any one company's experience, but I have to admit the company I'm most interested in sort of watching to see how they grapple with this is Amazon. Um, uh, they, I read a fascinating book a few years ago called Working Backwards by a couple of former Amazon executives. They talk a lot about the decision-making process in the company and especially hiring. And Amazon has really, and I have, I'm saying this, I'll say I have no idea whether Amazon has anything pending before you guys right now. So I, I, I sort of bring, bring one company up as an example, you know, warily. But I do know from the book that they they really worked hard over the years in their hiring process. They have a, an iterative and very personalized hiring process. At the same time, though, they are one of the biggest the big tech companies. And if anybody's going to integrate AI into their hiring process, it's going to be them. Uh, and so that's not a question, just an observation. I, I just I'm very curious to see where they go with this and the extent to which they try to publicize um, the way they do it. Uh, but Jace, back to you. Of course, no comment yeah. on any individual companies or any pending investigations or, or litigations, and, and we just talk in the aggregate here. <laughs> of, of course, of course, of course. This is just me. And, and by the way, the Gray Center is not funded by Amazon. I probably should throw that out there too. It's good to have all those disclaimers on. <laughs> I'm just just shooting from the hip here. Maybe I'll stop shooting and, and give it back to Jace. Yeah, thanks. The building on that, though, you mentioned that some of these best practices have been developed by some of the biggest corporations and research institutions around the world. And 
I didn't really notice in the details that there are any competing factions like, oh, you should treat AI this way versus that way. Whereas that did come out when you talked about how different jurisdictions are handling it. Like the example that California and New York have new laws that are really clamping down on how employers use AI in the near future, or even the EU has more of a heavy-handed approach versus I think you identify your perspective in the paper as deregulatory. How do you weigh uh, how to move forward with some of these AI tools, specifically when the big corporations and research research institutions are developing best practices, is there a risk that those best practices will only be able to be implemented by corporations with lots of experience with AI? Or is it a universal thing that smaller businesses could implement? Well, a few things. I think, I th- I think, uh, I, I think one thing I want to kind of lay out is that it's really important to look at what companies are doing and, you know, to look at the best practices. And I think that, you know, there's certain themes that you can kind of take from there. And in terms of, you know, the self-regulation, like we talk in the article about how it's become standard practice for a lot of major companies to develop their own best practices, their own AI ethical principles and so forth. And I think it's really important for us to do a survey of that, to kind of look at what they're doing. And then in addition to that, that a lot of the companies have formed partnerships. And not only, we also discussed in the article how civil rights organizations and educational institutions. And I think it's really important to say, you know, for for government purposes, what is the private sector doing? And, you know, could we look to it as an example? I mean, we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. And I I feel like that's like a really important thing to do to say, you know, what are they doing? What what does right look like in their eyes? And, you know, that's something that I think is really important with this uh, with this article. And look, you know, the, uh, the large companies can serve as a model for you know, best practices uh, for the government. A lot of companies don't wait for regulation um, or go above and beyond, uh, you know, think of the, in the medical, and I'm not an expert in this, in the FDA context, food, health, safety, uh, medicine devices, when you're talking about uh, life or death decisions, a lot of companies really go above and beyond um, what the, the regulations or the federal regulators require to ensure that they're having, you know, health and safety in their products, not to, not to kill anyone, right? So, you know, th- this is, it's, again, this is something that's has been we've seen in other industries and other areas but when it comes to technology you know you gave the example of amazon google facebook the engineers and computer scientists that they have are are likely and this is not a a criticism to any startups are are probably some of the the best and most sophisticated in the world so if the, these large companies, and many of them have, are taking a pledge that they want to use their AI responsibly, ethically, in a manner designed with uh, civil rights laws, with all you know, human dignity, you name all those buzzwords, they're having very, very smart, sophisticated people uh, internally doing their re- using their very valuable resources um, to ensure best practices. And a lot of them have been very public, and we cite some of them in the article, about what those best practices are. So I think we can all learn from them. But going back to my point earlier, if, if you are a, a company using this software and then another company puts out, you know, for instance, um, not endorsing or, or blessing, but, you know, for instance, IBM has put out some, you know, has discussed this. But so if you're, you're relying on that versus relying on nothing... <laughs> Or relying on a sales pitch, you're just going to be in a better position, and and that's you're hearing a theme here, and and I just really think that that's going to work and that's going to stick, um, if you're faced with an investigation. This is all fascinating. Maybe just one last question from me, um, Jace. Uh, but you know, the Gray Center, we don't we don't focus all that much on algorithms and AI around here. We did have a, a fascinating paper a few years ago by Daniel Ho and David Angstrom of Stanford, paper called um, Algorithmic Accountability in the Administrative State. And that was in the Yale Journal on Regulation, and it's on our website too. But as I was thinking about your paper from the standpoint of the bulk of what we do, thinking about regulatory structure and process, I was thinking a lot about the procedural side of these things in terms of the way that an agency like the EEOC might go about grappling with a new technology like this. I know there are a lot of smart scholars out there, including uh, Gary Marchant at Arizona State and Adam Thier at R, at R Street Institute, who have written over the years about what, what they call soft law 
and the idea that agencies moving forward with you know guidance and a lot of interaction with the regulated community, they can sort of shape regulation as the technology changes and learn in kind of an iterative process. On the other hand, I could see why companies might value the kind of clarity uh, for better and for worse that comes with broad categorical concrete rules and regulations. Um, I don't, I'm not asking you to sort of prejudge anything the commission is doing or thinking about doing, but just in big picture, how should, how, how should regulators think about these trade-offs between regulations versus softer forms of guidance when it comes to an innovative uh, and complicated technology like AI? I think we need all the help we can get. <laughs> and I think, you know, these are very complicated um, topics and there, there, there are some areas of the technology that we're not going to understand. And there's some data sets and what the algorithms looks like that we're not going to understand. So if you show one of our investigators, so we get the algorithm, right? We get a code and just a bunch of numbers or, or computer software that it can change a hundred times in your face. How is that going to help? But what we do know is discrimination and what we do know is results. So in a way to simplify your question is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what that fancy data set was. It doesn't matter what that crazy algorithm was. It matters what the results are. And if we see discrimination, there's going to be liability there. Now, how we backtrack it and prove it may be a, a different story. So I think a lot of it is just going back to the, to the absolute basics. But to the extent that we can get help from the private sector, from the technologists, um, with, with because as you know, most of the, the, the top software engineers is a whole nother conversation about trying to get them into the government, that they're not in the government because of the amount of money they're being offered uh, on the outside. So any help from the outside that we can get to better understand this um, from investigative purposes, from a compliance purposes, um, I think is only going to be helpful. And I encourage that continued um, outreach that the vendors have done. And look, in my position, I've met with a lot of vendors and I've spoken to a lot of them and they, they all don't want to design products that are going to discriminate. They don't want to design products that are going to violate our laws and have their clients um, be liable for significant federal actions. So those continued dialogues and discussions are very much appreciative and very much important. So where they can teach us the technical side, and then we can teach them what we know best, which is... Uh, which is the law and compliance with these laws that were uh, designed uh, or, or passed in the 1960s that are going to have to, you know, until Congress um, changes them, you know, from the executive branch's perspective, from our perspective, we have to enforce what's on the books. And, and that's our job now is to apply it to the, this modern technology to, I don't want to say old laws, but I guess they're getting kind of old, but they're, you know, my point is, in, in the paper, why we talk about the law is that they're not outdated, is they apply equally to the decisions being made by algorithms that haven't even been in quantum computing and all those fancy neural network words um, that haven't been invented yet in 2030 than they, that they did to somebody making a decision in, in 1960s after these laws were passed. So that can't be lost in this conversation. Thank you for that. That's a really good point. And I know we're almost at time, so I just wanted to thank both of you for coming on and talking about your article with us today. But before we leave, is there any aspect that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that our audience knows about? No, I think we've touched on most of the highlights. And I, I do want to echo Commissioner Sonderling's point, though, about how, you know, the, the, the value of this article in my eyes is that, you know, we are mindful of, you know, what's going on in the outside. I think that from a government perspective, you know, that it, it's really important to get feedback. And, you know, the article, we have up around 500 footnotes, something along those lines. And, you know, every best practice, you know, we cite practitioners, we cite industry leading experts, we cite from the vendor side, from, you know, Every across the spectrum, we even cited you know, most of the experts that you mentioned, including Adam Theer and people like that. You know, to to take a look at to say that you know that we're you know as far as outlining best practices, looking at these regulations, that you know it, it, it's a, it's important. I think especially for the whole purpose of notice and comment rulemaking to say you know let, let's get as much feedback as possible. So I think one of the value of the uh, article is the fact that you know we 
we, we account for everything that we say, everything's backed up by, you know, sources. And I think that's one of the reasons I encourage, you know, your listeners to take a look at the article when they have a chance. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And again, the article is in the University of Miami Law Review, and it's titled The Promise and the Peril, Artificial Intelligence and Employment Discrimination. And thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Just a great paper. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.